If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be talking about Mary this morning. Uh, it's unlikely at a Baptist church that you would preach on Mary, but we're going to be doing that this morning. It's going to be good. And Luke, Luke was a physician, and the book of Luke starts off with him saying that he had interviewed the eyewitnesses of the life of Christ. The people who were there. And he lays out an orderly account. He says, that's my goal. He says, I want to lay out an orderly calculated account of Jesus' life. He's writing the book to a man named Theophilus. And um, Luke uses the most intense Greek, most intelligent Greek than any of the writers in the New Testament. He's a very smart dude. And he was a physician, so he knows how important it is to be very precise and accurate with what you do. In the 1800s, there was a man named Sir William Ramsey who was a brilliant scientist. He actually discovered helium, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize in chemistry. But he was also a skeptic, and he set out to disprove the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He went to the Bible lands, he followed the Gospels, visited the places, and he could not even find one error or discrepancy in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And instead of disproving it, he became a Christian and gave his life to Christ. So this isn't just a fairy tale story. This is a historic account of what happened in that day. And let me say, before the Gospels were written, if you remember, for thousands of years, there were prophecies that God was going to send a Messiah. In Genesis, the Lord had referred and said it was through the seed of woman that God would send an answer who would crush the head of Satan. All of these prophecies uh, throughout the Old Testament, over 300 of them actually, saying, here's what the Messiah is going to be like. Here's what he's going to say. Here's where he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Here's what he's going to do. Here's the time of his birth. All of these are laid out. And then, then in the book of Malachi, it ends, and there's 400 years of silence. They're waiting, waiting for the Messiah. Many Jews today are still waiting for the Messiah because God says, I'm going to be sending a Messiah. They don't know his name. You know, they don't know uh, when he's going to come, but they know he's going to come. So the Gospel of Luke starts off with an old man named Zacharias, who was the priest at the time. And he and his wife wanted to have children, and part of the blessings of Abraham was the blessing of children. And when, if you didn't have children, then they were kind of ostracized and scorned. You must have a curse on you or something. So Zacharias and Elizabeth had no children. She was barren, and now they're elderly. Zacharias is going before the altar in the temple, and an angel appears to him in Luke chapter 1. 400 years of silence leading up to this point. And the angel says, Zacharias, your prayers are answered. You're going to have a son. And Zacharias is like, what'd you say? You know, he's an old man at the time. He's like, I didn't pray that recently. That was like 40 years ago. You know, what are you talking? And the, he didn't believe the angel. And the angel said, you're going to be silent until this child is born because you did not believe the word. He goes home, 
And his wife Elizabeth, just like the angel said, gets pregnant. Pregnant with John the Baptist. Elizabeth is living in the hill country of Judah, and she is overwhelmed because this miraculous birth, not only was she barren, but now she's old. It's like double whammy, and now she's pregnant. Unexpected pregnancy. She doesn't know what's going on. She just hears God's in this. Then we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, because the Lord hits act 2. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now Nazareth was a nobody town, little town. In the book of John, Nathaniel said, what can come out of Nazareth? That'd be almost like us saying, we're going to build a skyscraper in the metropolitan city of Sasser. You know, we're just like, what? You know, this is like, what? Nazareth was a nowhere town. And the Lord steps in to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now let me say something about the Bible overall. There is a consistent theme throughout the Bible that God humbles prideful people and he honors humble people. That's repeated throughout the Bible. Over and over again, Jesus pointed out in the Gospels, consistently the scripture says, don't be cocky and prideful. Don't strut. Because pride is based on a lie that we think we're more important than other people and we think we're more important than we really are. And so God says, I'm looking for the humble. And God favors the humble. In fact, you always see him throughout scripture favoring the humble. Who's going to be the great king? And, uh, Jesse lays out his impressive sons, and, and the Lord's like, nope, none of them. Let's go after the humble guy who thinks he's the nobody, the runt. Let's go after David. The angel appears to Gideon. That's the guy I want to use to raise up and defend them. And you see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus would pick the least likely person in the city to evangelize the city. Let's find the woman with the worst reputation who's been married five times, and now she's living with a guy. That's the one we want to use to evangelize the city. Least likely person. Okay, we're in this country of Jews, but they, they're big farmers, so they're obviously disembodied. Let's find the least likely guy to evangelize. Let's find the demon-possessed guy who's naked and walking around cutting himself. That's the guy let's use to evangelize the city. Let's pick blind Bartimaeus, the one that everybody's like, be quiet. That's the guy we want to use to evangelize the city. Remember the blind man who was uh, at, the, at the gate just begging and he gets healed, and in one day, he's that morning begging, and then that afternoon, he's standing before the leaders of the nation, instructing them and in all of their pride. That's the guy God wants to choose to evangelize the city. You won't understand the story of Mary unless you understand that principle. Because Mary, the truth is, she was a nobody. She said that about herself. She referred to herself as a nobody. The term lowly that she uses is humiliatingly low, depressingly low. And she lives in a nowhere town that everybody overlooks, Nazareth. So what do we know about her? Well, she's poor. She points that out later on. Uh, she's young, and the older are looking down upon the younger. She's a woman in a patriarchal nation. Her witness and testimony would not mean anything in court. She's ignored. She has no power, no position, no status in society. And her name, you know what Mary means? Bitter. 
bitter. Now, I named my son Grant because it means great, gift of God. Cohen means, you know, priest. Uh, Karis means grace. That'd be like me saying, here's my son Grant, Cohen, Karis, and here's our daughter Vinegar. That's basically, and our son Wormwood. You know, that's basically what they did. In fact, it was taken from Miriam's name in the Old Testament, Moses' older sister. They're under slavery. They're under all this oppression, and they, na- he names, they named their daughter Miriam, which means bitter one. And when they were escaping Egypt, if you remember, they found the bitter water, and they called it Mara because it was bitter. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, when her husband died and her, and her sons died, she came in, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. That means pleasant. She said, call me Mara, bitter, because life stinks. I'm depressed now. And so Mary has this name under what, where her parents named her Vinegar, basically. So, poor woman, nowhere town, names Vinegar, and an angel shows up and greets her. Look in verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. This is like saying, Greetings, woman who is richly blessed by God. And Mary is overwhelmed. That's like Gideon hearing from the angel, rise up, valiant warrior, and Gideon's like, man, I still wet the bed, you know. I struggle with, I've totally got insecurity issues. I'm hiding right now, and you say, rise up, valiant warrior. And that's what the angel, she's greeting Mary, overwhelming her with this greeting. Look at the next verse. It says, but she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, what kind of salutation is this? The angel said to her, do not be afraid, because she was afraid, for you have found favor with God. God has chosen to pour out undeserved grace upon you. I want to point out a few things about Mary this morning that are in your notes. The first one is that Jesus is the one who takes Mary into a place of significance. It wasn't that Mary had some magical womb that God wanted to, oh, we've got to find her. She's the magical one. We've got to let Jesus come there. Jesus' significance was not that Mary was his mother. Mary's significance was that Jesus was her son. And in this situation, Jesus maximized her wonder. At this point, Mary began a journey of being in awe of a holy God over and over again. And I don't know if you know Christ, but if you do, he introduces you, when you come to know him, to a life of wonder. When we read his word, we're overwhelmed in awe and wonder of who he is. When we see him answer prayer, we're, we're in awe and wonder of specifically answered prayers, of God providing, of God. I remember when my wife and I found out that the day our adopted daughter was born was the same day that God told us on an airplane that we needed to go adopt. We were in awe of the Lord. I remember when we were working on projects and we'd be praying for a specific amount of money and the Lord would send it through an anonymous donor to the penny right when we needed it. And we would be in awe of the Lord. When you see someone's life who's completely transformed by Christ and you see what they used to be like and you see what they're like now, there's no explanation. Religion can't do that. External rules from the outside can't do it. But the Holy Spirit can transform us from the inside when we, when we give our lives to Christ. And people have been in awe of the transformation that Jesus can bring. And Mary's journey of awe began right here. Because you, you pass 
you, you follow her life. And when the shepherd showed up later, she was in awe. Uh, when, when she sees S Simeon in the temple and he says, here's the salvation of the Lord, it says that she and Joseph were amazed at the things. When, she, when Jesus was 12 years old, they were amazed at him instructing the teachers. And it's no wonder because Isaiah 9 says, for a child will be born, a son will be given, the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. His counsel is going to cause you to be in wonder. You're going to be in awe of who he is. So, when I get to meet new believers, I get excited. I'm like, buckle up, buttercup. It's coming, man. God's about to do something great in your life. And you see the Lord do that. And in this situation, Mary was in awe. I'm a nobody. In Luke chapter 1, verse 30, it says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid. For behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. She knew the Messiah was coming and the angel said, you're the one chosen. The biggest nobody around here. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason... The holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, and here's a sign she gives her. She goes, oh, and by the way, I'm talking about a miraculous birth here. Let me point out another miraculous birth that's going on nearby. Your cousin Elizabeth, she says, and, or the angel says in verse 36, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now let me say something. Right here, thousands of years of waiting, who's going to be the Messiah? What's his name going to be? How's God going to do it? Where's he going to come from? This angel shares the name of the coming Messiah for the first time in human history in all the universe with Mary. His name will be called Jesus. God chose you, the lowest of the low to introduce to the name above all names, the name we are saved by calling upon, the name we pray in, the name that casts out demons, the name we're healed in, the name of Jesus above every other name. I love Mary's response. She says in verse 38, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Even though Mary was a nobody in the world's eyes, she was awesome spiritually. If you look at what she had, the faith that she had, what do we know about her? She was a virgin, which is part of the prophecy, but she was walking in purity, representing purity in her life. She was marrying a good man. Joseph was known to be a righteous man, a compassionate man. But at this moment, she showed her trust in God at a deep level. She was willing to surrender herself to God's will regardless of the cost. Now think about this. She was choosing what God was asking her to do over her own logic. This doesn't make sense. Over her own comfort, you're going to be pregnant. Over her own reputation. Her relationship with her parents. What in the world? She's giving up, in a sense, her marriage to Joseph. Because that was his plan to leave her when he found out. She's even willing to give up her own life 
Because when a woman in the Jewish community was pregnant before they were married, they would be stoned to death. So Mary is surrendering in faith to the will of God. Now, let me say this. She was not an overconfident girl, go-getter woman, just trying to take on an adventure. You know, she, do, she does not say in this situation, you know, I've been expecting someone to discover me. You know, <laughs> you know I'm highly intelligent. You know, I, I'm actually very attractive. I'm the full package. I've been waiting to be discovered. You know, she doesn't say that. She doesn't say, uh, you know, I'm the captain of the Nazareth High cheerleading team. You know, I'm, uh, have you seen me cook? You know, I can cook a Seder lamb chop better than, you, my falafels are to die for. You know, she didn't say any of those things. You know what she says about herself? She doesn't just say, may it be according to your word. She says, behold, the bondservant of the Lord. You know what a bondservant was? A slave. The least of the least. And the word she used in the Greek was a female slave, which is worse than the male slaves. She basically says, I am here to obey my master at all costs, is what she was saying. And you know, it's interesting, Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself, though he was God, he humbled himself and became a man and took upon himself the form of a bondservant, a bondslave, same word used here, of Jesus. And he lived his whole life to serve other people. And it's very appropriate that God would choose his mother to be of that same attitude. Because people who came to know Christ, it didn't matter their identity, their prominence, their wealth their prestige, the praise of men. When people came to know Christ, they humbled themselves in awe of who Jesus was. And they said, Jesus, I'm just here to serve you. Look at the apostles. Paul in Romans says, Paul. Now, Paul had 14 different ways he described himself in the, in the Bible. I'm, the, I'm a master builder. I'm a Pharisee. You know, I'm a, uh, he's a tent maker. He's, but how does Paul describe himself in, the, in, in his letters? Paul, the bond slave of Jesus. All of that other stuff takes a back seat. You know where my identity is found now? In just serving Jesus. Peter, look at, look at what Peter wrote. Peter, the bondservant of Jesus. Titus starts off. Titus, the bondservant of Jesus. James starts off. James, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bondslave of Christ. So what is it we're wanting to hear at the judgment? Well done, good and faithful doulos. Bondslave. One who is obedient at all costs, regardless of comfort, regardless of prestige, regardless of the pain, regardless of shame, I am here to serve my Lord. After this encounter with the angel, Mary did what I think any woman would do in that situation. She's overwhelmed, unexpected pregnancy, but she hears, hey, your relative is having an unexpected miraculous pregnancy too. And scripture says that she hightailed it basically over to go see Elizabeth. Look at chapter 1, verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went into a, in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, let me say this. Think about Elizabeth. She has no children, so she's in a quiet home. She lives in the hill country, so it's even more quiet. And the only person she can talk to, her husband, can't talk. So she's now in a silent place, quiet. And unexpectedly, she hears the voice of Mary. Now, Mary didn't walk in and say, I've got the Son of God in my womb. You know, she didn't say that. She walks in and greets Elizabeth. 
This moment is so incredible because you've got two very insignificant, overlooked women, but in their wombs are two world changers. John, she's an old woman, Elizabeth, and John, her son, is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's the last one of all the prophets leading the way to prepare the way for the Lord. And in Mary's womb, this young virgin is the new covenant, Jesus Christ. To begin, it says, it says uh, repeatedly, the law and the prophets were up until John, but then the gospel was preached through Jesus. And so when she hears the greeting, it's overwhelming at this moment. Look at what it says. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Notice she didn't say above women. She said among women. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now Mary hadn't told her what's going on. And Mary's barely, you know, she's not showing yet. And Elizabeth knows. For behold, the sound of your greeting reached my ears. The baby leapt in my womb. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken to her. Now Elizabeth knew what it was like to not believe because her husband couldn't talk. But Mary trusted God in the midst of, of all that she was going through. Mary responds in song and in worship. Number two in your notes, Jesus blessed her womb. It wasn't Mary's magical womb. It was the fact that God was choosing Mary. Now, let me say this. Mary is very controversial. There are churches that say she's the mother of God. And uh, that, used to be, that continues to be used by a lot of people. That's not biblical at all. Uh, the Council of Ephesus in A.D. used, used the Greek term for Mary that, that meant God-bearer, and they declared in that council in 431 A.D. that Mary was the mother of God. It was added to the Catholic catechism. And the logic was this. Jesus is God. True or false? True. Mary is the mother of Jesus. True or false? True. Mary is the mother of God. True or false? False. They, they mean well when they say that, but it's almost like saying... God is love, and love is blind. Stevie Wonder is blind. Stevie Wonder is God. That's not how it works, okay? That's not how it works. Not in the same way. Love is bl not in, blind in the same way that, you know, Stevie Wonder is blind. It's just totally different. So when you say Mary is the mother of Jesus, the man, true. Jesus is God. Where did his godness come from? From the Holy Spirit. Didn't get, she had nothing to do with his divinity at all. She's overwhelmed by this as well. So to say that Mary is the mother of God is biblically inaccurate. When John the Baptist entered the scene, he said, the one who comes after me, because Jesus was born after him, existed way before me. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie a shoe. Psalm 90 says, God has no beginning and no end. 1 Timothy 6 says, God is immortal. He's not born. He doesn't have a mother. It's unbiblical. It is biblical to say that Mary's the mother of Jesus of Nazareth. Pope John Paul II, in a speech in 1996, encouraged people to not only invoke the Blessed Virgin as the mother of Jesus, 
but to recognize her as the mother of God. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him, and there was nothing that was made that has been made except through Christ. He existed at the beginning, Scripture says. What did Jesus say about Mary? In in Matthew 12, while he was speaking to a crowd, preaching, his mother and his brothers showed up. And someone said, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. In verse 48 of Matthew 12, Jesus answered and said, who is my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? He's stretching out his hand towards his disciples. He said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. In Luke 11, a woman walks up to Jesus in the crowd and says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. And Jesus responds in verse 28 of Luke 11. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Mary was awesome. She was humble. God used her. She was blessed. She had the Son of God in her womb. But every believer in Jesus Christ who surrenders to him has the Holy Spirit in their hearts and leading us, and guiding us, and blessing us, and using us in our lives. So Mary responds, as Elizabeth honors her, Mary responds in worship to the Lord. Mary's success and blessings and identity were wrapped up in her relationship with Jesus. If you don't believe me, look at the Magnificat, how Mary responds in verse 46. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary is admitting that she needed a Savior. She didn't say the Savior. She said my Savior. For he had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. In this whole passage, you hear Mary honoring that God humbles himself and reaches out to the poor and the lowly and raises them up, and he puts down the proud. Verse 48, for he's regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation. He has done mighty things with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their hearts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. J. Vernon McGee says this. Mary tells us her song that she needed a savior and that she rejoiced in him. We don't make her a goddess and kneel before her, but we do call her blessed. It was her glorious privilege to be the mother of the son of God, to bring him into the world. We should not play it down, but we should not play it up either. Mary would be horrified at the idea of people building statues to her, kneeling down to her and praying to her. That's not who she was. You never see that in Scripture. You never see people uh, kneeling down before Mary. When the wise men showed up, it says that they saw Mary and the baby, and they knelt before Jesus and worshiped him. This Magnificat shows that Mary knew the word. She knew it well. In verse 46, she says, My soul exalts the Lord, 
This is almost a direct quote of Psalm 35, 9 and Habakkuk 3, 18, when it says, my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Verse 48, she says, for he is regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Psalm 138, 6 talks about he regards the lowly. She says in verse 49, the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name, not my name. Psalm 98 says, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained us the victory for him. She says in verse 50, his mercy upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Psalm 103 says, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, his righteousness to children's children. She says in verse 53, he's filled up the hungry with good things. Psalm 107 says, the hungry soul he is filled with what is good. She says in verse 54, he's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, and he, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So Mary reaches back beyond the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. She reaches back beyond David and Moses to Abraham because that word descendants is the word seed. And God said to Abraham, through your seed, the world will be blessed through Jesus. And right now she's realizing this is being fulfilled and I get to be a part of it. She's overwhelmed. Mary's song is amazing, but it's not intended to honor her. It fully is intended to honor God because everything she said is actually fulfilled through Jesus later on. She said, my soul exalts the Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus. Verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Who's the Savior? Jesus. Jehovah saves is what his name means. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Who's the ultimate bond slave? Jesus, Philippians 2 says. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Who has the holiest name of all? The name above every name. Jesus. His mercy is upon generation after generation on those who fear him. And Jesus is the blessing on all generations through Abraham's seed. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, God says. Who is the right arm of God? Jesus. She said he scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's constantly humbling the proud. Herod and Pilate, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the rich. He's constantly doing it. Verse 52, he's brought down rulers from their thrones. Who is the one who brings all authorities and rulers under his feet? Jesus. He has filled the hungry with good things. Who shows up at the bread, as the bread of life? Jesus. And, and she said, and he sent away the rich empty-handed who sent away the rich young ruler empty-handed? Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that she was saying. But let's move on. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. The Old Testament said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But we have a problem here. Mary doesn't live in Bethlehem, and neither does Joseph. They live 70 miles away in Nazareth. And so what does God do? At just the right time, he calls the leader of the entire world, the Roman Empire, Caesar, to decide, you know what I've decided I want to do? I want to cause the whole world to be taxed. We're going to take a census and force people to go back to where they were born in their hometown. So God is rocking the whole world. The government is already on the shoulders of Christ because 
causing Mary and Joseph at just the right time to take a journey all the way to Bethlehem. And this is fulfilling the prophecy. I wonder if they knew it. They may have been thinking, this is the Messiah. The Bible says he'll be born in Bethlehem if they knew the word. We're going to end up there. And then the census comes through. So it's pretty incredible. Micah 2 says, Micah 5 2 says the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem. And so as she was entering the Bethlehem, I wonder though if a few lights went off. Because you know what happened in Bethlehem? Bethlehem is where Naomi showed up. It was when she stepped in Bethlehem and said, Call me Mara, bitter one. It was right when she entered Bethlehem. And when Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, bore a son, Ruth 4 says, The Lord enabled Ruth to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life. And here's already a picture of one who said, Call me Mara, with a baby being a restorer of life, a Redeemer. And as Mary is entering Bethlehem, she, Mary, would be having a baby that would be the restorer of life. It says in chapter 2, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Number four in your notes, Jesus sanctified her work. Jesus sanctified her work. Did I give you number three? Oh, Jesus embodied her worship is number three. Forgive me. Jesus embodied her worship. Everything that she was worshiping, Jesus was the fulfillment of all those things. Jesus sanctified her work. Now, we've heard all growing up, have the baby lying in the manger. I was in a Christmas uh, program when I was like six years old with a towel on my head, being a shepherd. I mean, we've all seen that. You know, the nativity, and here's the manger, and it's this wooden kind of X thing with hay in it, you know, and baby Jesus is placed in there, and you know, you got the wise man who actually didn't come till later. You know, they're a part of the nativity, and the shepherds are all there, and you know, we, we think that's great. It's on the front of Christmas cards, and you know, that this is Mary, though, doing her job, taking care of her baby, wraps him up, And what does it say? She placed him in a manger, which is a feeding trough. Now, this wasn't significant for me. I was like, you know, what's the big deal in this situation? But notice that this is the sign that the angel said is so significant. They repeat this over and over again. Verse 7, she wraps him in cloths, lays him in a manger. Look at verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around about them. They were terribly frightened. The angel said, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's the sign. Shepherds knew where mangers were. They knew where feeding troughs were. And God, again, is choosing the outcasts. Shepherds couldn't even go into the temple because they were dirty. They're the blue-collar workers left out at night. they They have the unwanted jobs. And God's like, those are the guys I want to share the gospel with first through the angel. 
The shepherds show up, and what does it say? When the angels had gone away, the shepherds said, Let us go straightway to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16, So they came in a hurry, found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known this statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in their heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told by him. Now, when I was in Israel, I've been to Israel twice, they showed us what a manger looks like. In Bethlehem, there's not forests everywhere. It's pasture land. They have limestone everywhere. And they show us this picture of a manger. And it wasn't this wooden trough. It was this carved out hewn stone. I was disappointed. I was like, no, that can't be a manger. I imagine the Christmas cards and the little X wooden thing. You know, I've got friends that have ministries with building mangers. And it's always wood. They show us this carved out stone. So I was disappointed. I took pictures of this manger in Bethlehem. Then I researched online. Go research stone mangers. There's tons of pictures online of stone mangers. This is, uh, there's two pictures on here. There's another one of a baby in one. A little white non-Jewish baby, a little Gentile. But, you know, the example there of uh, this baby in a manger. So I'm like, why is that the sign? What's so significant about that? So I started looking in Scripture. You know when the next time angels showed up after this point and ever spoke to people throughout all the Gospels? It was at the empty tomb. Who showed, Joseph and Mary are the only two people with Jesus the baby that talks about Joseph you know, taking Jesus to the temple and then the name Joseph stops. There's a reference to Jesus having a brother named Joseph. You know when the next time a Joseph in the Gospels does anything? It's in Mark. Listen to this. Mark 15. After Jesus dies on the cross, when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, Joseph of Arimathea. Oh, I hadn't heard that name in a while. A prominent member of the council himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He gathered up courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead at this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. What did Joseph do with the body of Jesus? He, he brought, bought a linen cloth, took him down, it says he wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And guess who was there, the next verse says. Mary Magdalene and Mary, another Mary, were looking to see where he was laid. What? When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene shows up and angels show up and said he's not here. He's risen. Go tell his disciples. Here's the good news. Do you know a manger was a hewned-out stone? You know what the big sign is? Wrapping baby Jesus in cloth and laying him in a hewned-out stone. 
Who's there? Mary and Joseph. And the angels are saying, that's the sign. We pause, jump to the end of the New Testament, and we see a Mary and a Joseph, a different one, showing up. And what do we see? Angels show up again talking to people. A hewned out stone, the body of Jesus is not here. Guess what the sign was in Bethlehem? It's already a picture of Jesus' mission to die on the cross and raise again from the grave. Amen. Amen. God is very precise in everything that he does. He's awesome. He's unbelievable in, in how precise he is. So we summarize this with Philippians 2. It says, let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. He existed before Mary. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. There it is, bond slave. And was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You know what your life is about? It's about nothing until you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you don't come to him strutting, demanding from him. You humble yourself before him. Because he existed before the foundation of the world. And he humbled himself for you and died a criminal's death on a cross that you and I deserved. His name means Jehovah saves. And he's offering salvation to anyone who will repent and believe in him. And it is our privilege, it is an honor for us to humble ourselves before him and say, Lord, here I am, your servant to do your will, whatever the cost, regardless of the cost, I am here to obey you. And our worship will go to another level because he embodies our worship and he maximizes our wonder and he sanctifies our work. And that's the last thing in your notes. She is wrapping Jesus, doing a work and sanctified. God had a bigger, more awesome plan. David in the Old Testament was taking care of sheep. God had a bigger and awesome plan to cause him to shepherd Israel. It's awesome when you think that God wants to take our lives in all of our dysfunction and brokenness, and if we'll humble ourselves before him, for him to take us and do something significant to sanctify the work of our hands for his glory. So if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, come on in. The water is fine. As a satisfied customer, I want you to know that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you're a believer, be encouraged that Christmas is all about Jesus, but so is every day, and so is your life. And he wants you to trust him completely with the next thing you're worried about and perplexed about and uncomfortable about, because he has a plan for the, before the foundation of the world. And the scripture says we make our plans, but God is ordering our steps. So he's going before you, and he loves you, and you can trust him completely. Let this time, let this Christmas season be all about him, because all of life is about him.
Scripture says he created all things, and all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and through him all things hold together. Let's pray. In just a moment, on the amen of this prayer, we're going to stand and sing, and we're going to have an invitation time. And I want to invite you to make a decision. That decision may be in your seat, where you just want to recommit your life to Jesus Christ, if you already know him. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, today is a great day, the perfect day, for you to call upon him and be saved. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And though we deserve punishment for our sinfulness against the holy God, through Jesus' death on the cross, we can be forgiven. And so the command of Scripture is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God says he's already paid the price for salvation on the cross. He came as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And he rose again from the grave, proving he was the Son of God. And he offers life and forgiveness to anyone who will call upon him to be saved. And let today be the day that you call upon Jesus to save you. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, I pray, God, that we would lift up Jesus above our problems, above our confusion, above our skepticism, above all of our needs, and see that you are sufficient for every need. You're more than enough. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves in our foolish, materialistic American pride. We would humble ourselves before a holy God who gives us life and breath in every heartbeat. And Lord, I pray that we would trust you completely. We would say, like Mary, may it be according to your will. May my life be according to your will. Here I am to serve you. Whatever you ask of me, I'm humbling myself before you, a holy God. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand, we will sing, and you come forward. There are men forward, there are men down here that are ready to receive you if you would like to make a decision for Christ.